Well, good morning. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Supreme greetings from Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. Always feel very welcome when I'm here. You guys are truly um, your home folk to me, and so I'm always grateful to be able to come. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 15. We're looking at the first four verses this morning. Revelation 15, this is God's word to us. Let's give our attention to it now. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come before your presence together. We thank you that we have access to your throne because of the work of Christ. This morning, Lord, we would ask once again that you would illuminate our understanding of your perfect revelation. Allow it to renew our minds to warm our hearts, encourage us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to start by asking you a question this morning. A couple questions. How do you, how do you respond to the difficulties and the hardships of life now certainly there is no one or easy answer to these questions, for we understand that there are all kinds of hardships, and if we're honest, we don't always act the same, even with the same hardships. We recognize there are those minor difficulties of life that just make our day bad. The heavy traffic on 35, the flat tire, the family stomach bug. Or just when things don't go quite as good as we wanted them to at work. 
But then there are the really serious difficulties that, that can, can ruin our week, if not our month. Things like a serious car accident, an intense argument with a loved one, a loss of a job, the failing of a class, the lack of a promotion that you were expecting. Oh, but then there are the serious hardships. Those that can impact you for years, if not for the rest of your life. Your house is foreclosed on. Your spouse gets cancer. You lose a loved one and the list could go on. Yet regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the hardship or the suffering, how we respond is determined in large part by why we think this situation has happened to us. We've all asked these questions, haven't we? Why is this happening to me? What is the purpose for this? How we answer these questions makes an impact on how we respond to certain hardships or difficulties of life. Yet, these questions are not easy, are they? Scripture does not tell us how to read providence. Much of providence belongs to the secret things of the Lord, and they are not given to us. And if we're not careful, we can be overly curious. We could be overly speculative. We could even be demanding. Why? Why has this happened to me? If we're honest, we just don't know. We try to understand a personal, yes, even a global crisis, and why this or that happened, we ultimately need to admit we just don't know. Brothers and sisters, for the most part, God doesn't tell us why. We are unable to answer difficulties. We are unable to answer hardships, major issues with any detail, with any kind of clarity, for God's purposes are so much bigger than us, even our own lifespan. Nevertheless, this doesn't mean that God has left us completely in the dark. In fact, one of the major comforts that our Lord does give us is that one day He will return and He will bring justice. He will make absolutely everything right. He will reveal His righteousness in all ways throughout history. And the celebration of this very thing is what is set before us in this opening text found here in Revelation 15. Now prior to us getting into our text this morning, it's important that we lay some interpretive ground rules as we approach this passage. You see, if we're not mindful, we can avoid this book. Many do. Many avoid this book out of ignorance, out of fear. But they separate themselves from the pastoral benefits that the Apostle John intends for it to be. There are some self-proclaimed experts of this book who use headline hermeneutics to elevate this book to a prominence shared by no other book of the Bible. And as a result, there's either one of two things. 
There's either an unhealthy preoccupation with this book. You've seen them where they have the charts and the graphs and 16 commentaries and all the sermons they ever listen to is Revelation. But then there's the other outside of a preoccupation. There's the complete avoidance because we think we just can't break the Revelation code. Yes, this book is difficult. It is hard to comprehend. And as we read through it, you'll see dragons and plagues and trumpets and bowls and a variety of other things. And so, yes, it does have a level of difficulty. But I want to remind you this morning, it is the inspired word of God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. In short, the Lord has not given us as the church this book to confuse or confound us, but rather to encourage us with his sovereignty and to strengthen our faith as we go through hardships, as we go through this life of trials and suffering. With that being said, Let's consider first the title of the book, The Apocalypse or Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this title says a great deal about the book. It is an apocalypse or revelation. You may be asking at this point, well, Brent, what exactly does that mean? Well, an apocalypse is a disclosure. It's a revealing. It's a making known something that was not previously seen understood or known. So what is the purpose of this unveiling? John tells us, 1-1, one, one, to show to his servants, talking about the servants of Christ, the things that must soon take place. So it is a revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus. And it is for us that we might understand what will soon take place. Additionally, this, is, this book is a blessing. He has revealed these things to us as a blessing. Look at 1-3 real quick. It says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We see the means of grace. We see the, the reading aloud of the word of God. Those that listen and those that abide the word. Brothers and sisters, this means that this book is for you. This book is not meant for some secret elite group within the church. Some group with some kind of special insights. Rather, this book is for you. This book is for the spiritual health and well-being of the church. Listen to me. In the last days. In 22.10, the angel tells John not to seal up the words of this prophecy, the prophecy of this book. This book then is meant to be understood. Thus, to neglect this book or to play games with this book is to go against the Lord's explicit will. This means that revelation is meant for you to read to understand and to learn from. It means that this book is good for your faith. 
It draws you closer to your Savior. Now, as you come to this book, you need to understand that it is not chronological. That's not how John wrote it. Now, there are some chronological elements in it, but, but as you read it carefully, the, the entire book in, in one sitting, it'll, it'll take you about an hour and 25 minutes, hour and 30 minutes to do so. You're going to come to see that it repeats itself. In fact, the book as a whole is a sevenfold rep repetition of the same story. Oh, and what's that story? Ultimately, it's the redemption of God's people and the judgment of unbelievers. How God protects his people and how God punishes those that persecute his people. And that's repeated seven, seven separate times. This recapitulation is like watching the same baseball game, but from different camera angles. When you think about it, think of it from an angle from the pitcher's mound, from behind home plate, first and third base, and outfield. It's not a new event, brothers and sisters. It's the same event taken from different vantage points. A very common feature within this genre. These events will grow each time in its intensity. And the reason these events are recapitulated is to convince us as the readers that these things will certainly take place. Now, the biggest challenge in interpreting this book, however, is that this book is characterized with more than one literary style. First of all, maybe most importantly, and we, we must not forget this, this book is a letter. It's a letter. You can see clearly defined author. Look at uh, verse 4 of 1. John, in 1-9, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation. There are also some clearly defined recipients back in 1-4 to the seven churches that are in Asia. So, so there's an author, that there are recipients that they are referred to as I and you, as, as do all letters do. You also know that this, this letter's opening resembles many other New Testament letters written by Peter, by James, as well as the Apostle Paul. Verse 4 again, grace and peace to you. That's a standard New Testament reading. Moreover, the very last line of the book is typical of most endings of the New Testament. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. That's 22-21. It's a letter. Now, why is this important for us? Well, like all other New Testament letters, this letter is occasional. That is to say that it is written to address a certain historical situation. Real people in real churches facing very real problems. It was written to help real churches in time of suffering to be encouraged in their faith. And it was written to be understood by them. Why is this so important? Well, that means that any interpretation that could only be understood by a 21st century perspective, listen to me, is almost certainly wrong. Simply put, 
The text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the first century church. Secondly, Revelation is a prophecy. It's not just a letter, it's a prophecy. Note verse 3 in chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. It is God's prophetic word that discloses his mysteries to his people. Why? So they can understand them. Now, there's one significant difference between the Old Testament prophecies and the book of Revelation. You see, the Old Testament points to the future in the sense that we, we can see clearly in the book of Daniel that uses the term in the last days. In Revelation, we see a little bit different phrase. Phrases like what must soon take place without delay and the time is near. This, brothers and sisters, is about the present age. As our Lord made this clear in Matthew 24, as did Paul in the book of Thessalonians. We are in the latter days that began with anyone that was inaugurated with the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. This present age is the age of fulfillment between the Lord's first and second coming. The Old Testament prophecies and those of Revelation began to be fulfilled in John's day. They are still being fulfilled in ours. When? Until Christ returns. Now let's come a little bit closer to our text this morning. It opens up with a heavenly scene dealing with the last and the final day of the Lord. This scene is truly remarkable. It's amazing. Now this heavenly sign is actually the third out of three signs in the book of Revelation. The first two signs are revealed in the opening of chapter 12. The first sign being the woman with child and the second, the fiery red dragon. Thus, these three signs then are connected so that the third sign now brings the episode of chapters 12 and 14 to a close. In fact, this third sign is also the seventh vision in chapters 12 and 14. The seven trumpets ended in chapter 11. The seven bowls began immediately following after this. And so here... Here there are these seven visions from 12.1 to 15.4, making this then, these chapters, a connected unit. This takes us beginning at the birth, the work of Christ throughout the entire church age to the last day of history. Thus the third sign then brings resolution to the first two signs. But the sign that there was this glorious woman who gave birth to the Christ child. That the second sign opposed the first being the seven-headed fiery red dragon who drooled and hungered to devour the woman and her man-child. The first two signs introduced the great conflict of redemptive history that began at the very beginning of history. The enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. War began with the evil one and God's people on the day of the Lord, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
It was there. It was there that the, that the city of man and the city of God rose in opposition to one another. And it is this war that's being narrated for us in Revelation through a series of visions, in particular in chapters 12 through 14. Especially at this point, focusing on the victory blow that Christ dealt on the evil one in his death and resurrection, chapter 12. But then, the vision turns to the war that the beast wages on the rest of the woman's seed. That is, us, the church of the last days. Well, this third sign is seven vision. Uh, brings the war to a final end. The completion of God's plan is sung right here. The curtain of the day of the Lord is drawn to a close, and this sign of the age to come begins. Now, a question we may be asking ourselves, and this, this is important for us to think about, is why another vision about the final day of the Lord? There are numerous ones in Revelation. In fact, there are, there are three in chapter 14 that, that dealt with the day of the Lord. Verses 1 through 5 of 14 shows us shows the saints victorious on heavenly Mount Zion. 6 through 13 of chapter 14 proclaim the fall and the punishment of the wicked. Verses 14 through 20 showed the judicial separation from the saints to the wicked. So I ask you then, why another? Why another? Well, this vision has a pastoral force. Since we who have, have put our faith in Christ and are united to Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We belong to the kingdom of heaven and not on the earth. Thus, Scripture calls us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated. We should live, listen to me, this is the, the important part, and I want you to think about this with me. We should live consistently with our heavenly identity as new creations in the Lord. But if we're honest, this isn't always easy, is it? Between keeping the house clean eating, going to school, we're just trying to make ends meet. It's easy for heaven to flutter out of our minds. So these heavenly visions then, they, they remind us of why we live by faith. It encourages us with our eternal home. And, and this vision, this, this final sign in heaven particularly helps us when we find ourselves in situations where justice on this side of heaven, they seem impossible. In fact, if anything, we think that it's just a bunch of injustice. When God's plan is hidden from our sight, we, we find ourselves discouraged. Indeed, the, the, the aspect of the final day that, that is the focal point in our text is revealed by this song that is sung as the victorious saints sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. Now, this dual title of this song, uh, this song of Moses and of the Lamb, functions to identify for us the type of song that this is. And 
on what occasion that it is being sung. First, it is the song of Moses, which refers to Exodus 15, which Pastor Brent read for us. That glorious song that Moses wrote and Israel sung on the shores of the Red Sea after the sea swallowed up the armies of Pharaoh. Thus, when you think about this, this is a victory song. It is a song of deliverance. Its tone joyous. Its tone exuberant. Yet what is really interesting about this song in Exodus 15 is it's the reference that in the title, none of the phrases actually come from Exodus 15 in Revelation 15. Yet even more interesting about this is the the phrases do actually come from the Old Testament. Some are from Psalm 86. There are some from Deuteronomy 28, 32, Jeremiah 10, Psalm 98, Psalm 111, Psalm 145. My point is this, that our text this morning is bathed in Old Testament history, yet none of the phrases actually directly come from Exodus 15. Now, why is this purposeful? For as you know, most of us know that the Exodus and the Red Sea is the chief redemptive act of the Old Testament. Thus, the Exodus became the type of all of God's other redemptive works. The Exodus, brothers and sisters, pictures God's ultimate salvation of his people in the cross of Christ, his resurrection. And in his second coming, the Exodus is the foundational picture for the reality we have accomplished in Christ. Therefore, by referring to Exodus 15, but not quoting from it, John is saying this song is the song of the latter day Red Sea crossing. It is the victory song of the new Exodus. The victory song of Christ's second coming. Thus we see that God is praised. He's lauded here for his glorious perfections, for his works. His deeds, as you can see, are great and marvelous. They are truly spectacular. They greatly exceed what anyone could have ever imagined. His works are marvelous than, than we could ever conceive of. I'd like to remind you that His ways are holy. His ways are just. They are true. And He is the sole Holy One. As the true God, who is the Lord and so sovereign over all of history, all that God does is just. It is righteous. It is trustworthy. That is, in God's plan, there is no sin, no evil, no impurity, no mistakes, absolutely no flaws in the Lord's redemptive plan. Nothing, nothing, I'm going to do it one more time. Nothing happens apart from the sovereign will of of God. 
God is being praised for his just holiness because at the close of the day of the Lord, his righteous deeds will be fully revealed and on display. Look at the last phrase of the psalm, the last sentence of verse four. Your righteous acts have been revealed. What was largely hidden in the course of history will be made known to all. The righteousness of God that undergirds all the seeming chaos and injustice of human history will be made known to all people for the redeemed and the unredeemed. Isn't this one of the major tensions in our lives as well as in history? God is just. His ways are righteous. But boy, it is so hard to see from our perspective with a 24-hour news cycle bombarding us with man's depravity. If we're very honest, sometimes we just don't understand the justice of God on this side of heaven. Isn't that my job? Uh, Job wanted an audience of God. Have you ever thought about that? Job suffered from his perspective for, for no just reason. And so what did he want? He wanted to find out directly from God himself. This kind of tension is reflected dramatically for us in the book of Revelation, also specifically in chapters 12 and 13. In 13.7, the beast received, listen to me, in 13.7, the beast received authority from God ultimately to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The beast and the false prophet held captive the offices of common grace for his evil purposes. The wicked grow rich while the saints are denied the most basic necessities of life. Yes, even life itself. Even relative justice and equity, when you read, seems in danger. During the war with the beast, which is our current present lives, God's righteousness isn't always seen clearly. We believe in God's justice. We just often don't understand how. And of course, the beast does what he does. He accuses God for being unjust. He accuses God for being unjust. And, and he attempts to exalt, exalt himself above God. But in the last day, in the day of the Lord, the Lord's righteousness will be revealed. His acts will be made clear to the entire world. It's made clear only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the worker of the new exodus. The whole world, listen to me, the whole world will bow the knee to Christ. The unbeliever will be forced to acknowledge what Christ has done, what the triune God has done to bow his knee, to fear and to glorify God's name. His justice, his righteousness will be glaringly obvious so that all will come and they will bow before him. They will be judged. 
The unbeliever will be judged outside of Christ, and yet they will testify to God's justice for doing it. We're talking about the unbeliever. Their mouth will be shut, and yet they will acknowledge, your acts are righteous, even in sending me to hell. As well, on the final day, we, God's people, will fully understand God's righteous deeds. It will be nice, it will be comforting to know, how, how could God use Pharaoh? How could God use a country like Babylon for his purposes? How, how could he grant such authority to the beast and against the saints? Brothers and sisters, these will all be revealed to us. And we will see God's perfect justice in all of them. What we hold on to now by faith that God works absolutely everything for the good of those that love him. This we will then see and know by sight. And it's then we, as God's people, will sing this song. What a comfort. What a comfort the Lord has given us now as we struggle with confusion, as we struggle with frustration in a world that seems all too messed up. For the day is coming when all things will be made clear. All things will be made right. God's just, true, and righteous ways will be completely and utterly unfolded for us. Oh, what a beautiful day it will be. Indeed, this, this should give you strength. This should encourage you to live by faith. Now, right now, today, this Lord's Day, even when there are so many things that we just don't understand. Now, there's more to this song than just the praise to God's judgment of the wicked. And this is shown by the picture of who is singing this song. The choir of the song of Moses and the Lamb is those that, listen to me, that have conquered the beast, its image, and the number of its name. In short, the saints will sing this song. You, you who believe in Christ will sing this new song. Yet, we as the saints are described here precisely in terms of the, to me, of the last few chapters of which the vision brings to a close. The beast, the image, and the number of his name are given to us in chapter 13. And how the saints overcome and conquer the beast is also given to us. In fact, this could be found in 12.11. If you want to look at it, you may look at it with me. 12.11 of Revelation says this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen to this. For they love not their lives even unto death. We as the saints overcome because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are victors in Christ. Why? Because he died. He rose again for us. He gave his spirit so that we might continue to live in faith, obedient unto death. Now, what precisely comprises victory here? 
this victory. Well, in chapter 12, 11, the conquering has specifically to do with the accusations of the dragon, that old ancient serpent. As well as some, one of the goals of the beast and the false prophet was to convict and execute the saints in the courts of this world. That's the world circled, uh, the war circled around us in this. When you think about this war, it's, it's circled around God's justice in saving God's people. The dragon of the beast wanted to accuse us as being guilty. The serpent argued with God, saying God was unjust in saving us, for we are sinners in Adam. Oh, when Satan failed in God's courtroom, being cast to the earth, he sought then what? A conviction of the saints in the courts of this world. Now, there is a point of truth to these accusations of the dragon, and we all acknowledge it. We are sinners in Adam. Thus, how can God be just and save us who are sinners? And indeed, don't our guilty consciences whisper similar accusations? You, you've heard those little whispers, right? How can God save me? Surely, I'm too guilty for God's grace. The gospel, the gospel is just too good to be true. It, it can't apply to me. If we're honest, these type of questions, they, they haunt us a lot more often than we like to admit. Yes, perceiving God's justice isn't just a challenge in the world around us, brothers and sisters. It can be difficult in our own hearts but this vision pictures how this is so. Look at the posture of this victorious choir. What are they doing? Look at verse 2, chapter 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, what are they doing? They're standing on a sea of glass before the Lord. This is nothing less than the posture, posture of resurrection, of vindication. It was the Lamb who was slain, who but stood in heaven as a sign of His resurrection. After the two witnesses in chapter 11 were killed by the beast, the spirit of life entered them and made them stand on their feet, a sign of their resurrection. Thus, these standing saints in the resurrected body singing to God, the resurrection is the proof, it's, it's of their vindication, it is the proof, listen to me, of God's justice. For they stand on a sea, a sea crystallized like glass mixed with fire. The sea is symbolic. It pictures for us chaos, evil, and sin. It is the home of the beast. Fire is the symbol of God's just judgment. Thus, for the sea to be like glass means that God tamed the chaotic sea. He calmed the sea with his righteous fire, freezing it to never stir again. 
No, not a wave, not a wave. In Exodus 15, 8, Israel sang about the Red Sea, how it congealed, how the floods stood up in a heap. The Lord destroyed the injustices of his enemies and then destroyed the enemies of his people. And the reason this is significant is in the second coming of Christ, the greater and new exodus, God stills the sea once and for all. Sin and death is judged once and for all. Hence for the conquering saints to stand on this sea of glass means that we have been, not been judged as being evil or impure. It means that God's justice is openly displayed in our resurrection. Yes, brothers and sisters, this vision means that your resurrection is proof, not just of God's mercy, grace, and love. It is proof of God's justice. Does one of the key righteous acts that, that is revealed here, it is not just um, the punishment of the wicked. It is also the open and public declaration of you as being and possessing the very righteousness of God. Indeed, this is what you will sing in glory when you stand on that sea of glass. So what exactly does this mean for us right now? Well, it means that your resurrection is the necessary outcome of your justification. To be justified now. To be justified now means that you will be resurrected in glory as a part of God's righteousness. As the Apostle Paul says about our justification in Christ, he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Because the blood of the Lamb covered the mouth of the beast, silencing his accusations. Brothers and sisters, we're not just forgiven. We have been made righteous in Christ. Just like in, in chapter 6 and 7 of this very book, when the question was asked, who can stand in the judgment of God? The saints, listen to me, by the blood of the Lamb stands victorious. Why? Because they are righteous in Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul says, For our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin imputed to him. Our sin imputed to the spotless Lamb of God. This was so that God could be both the just and the justifier of the ungodly who put their faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, without Christ's righteousness, righteousness credit to us, there is no salvation. And if there's no salvation, there is no resurrection. Thus, this message this morning of the posture of the saints in the Song of the Lamb should encourage us in our walk 
with Christ. This is not something new or innovative. It is the mercy and grace by which we live every single day. Indeed, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith now, listen to me, is the foundation of your hope. It is your security. God has ruled that we are righteous in Christ and listen to me, nothing can undo that declaration. Our resurrection then is the outcome of being the righteousness of of God in Christ. Indeed, it is the grace of God that enables us, listen to me, to die well in the Lord. We proclaim then, praise God for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This should fill us with love to obey God in our lives and to sing now, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father is both gracious. He's gracious and just to lead you from death, from condemnation to new life, new life in Christ. This is what it means when he says no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And it is us that will stand on that glassy sea, pure and holy. To my friends outside of Christ, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment, and it is a fearful thing. Because those who have not repented and believed in the person and work of Christ will be cast into everlasting punishment. This is a just punishment. This is a due punishment for rejecting the mercy of God, for living a life that hates the God of creation, that hates the God of redemption, that rejects his son Christ. This truly is a fearful fate. And so my plea to you this morning, turn away from your sin. Place your faith in the person and work of Christ who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life of obedience, who died a sacrificial death in your stead, who conquered sin and death in rising from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Go to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Be adopted into the household of God. Let's go to the Lord. Once again, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. For the Lord's day that you have given us to strengthen our faith. There are so many things that are trying to vie for our attention. There are so many things that are trying to confuse and confound us and stress us out. And yet it is your word that encourages us this morning. 
Allow us to be strengthened in our faith in the person and work of Christ. Allow us to be reminded that we have been made righteous because of the work of Christ. And that the promise that one day we will sing this song, this song of Moses, this song of the Lamb, knowing that all our sins have been put away. Father, for those that have not made uh, a profession of faith, Lord, we would ask, show mercy. Awaken them by your spirit and your word. Have your intended effect this Lord's day upon us all. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.